Barnabas is introduced to us in Acts 4.36 as the son of encouragement. Man, what a nickname. I can't think of a better way to be known to others than as one who actively encourages. I want to give you 20 tips on encouragement, things that you can put into practice right now and bless the lives of those around you. Number one, look for the lonely and reach out to them. Number two, pay attention to the small details and acknowledge what others may miss. Number three, do not miss the bashful and the shy. Number four, listen closely and find out what's going on in people's lives. Number five, care. Number six, pray for opportunities to encourage. Number seven, at times, encourage anonymously. Number eight, remember those who are usually hidden behind the scenes. Number nine, put yourself in the place of others. Number 10, see through Christ-like eyes. Number 11, find happiness in encouraging and joy in others receiving encouragement from you. Number 12, consider encouragement your sacred duty. Number 13, do an act of service for someone who is unsuspecting. Number 14, be a meaningful, genuine complimenter who is free of selfish motives. Number 15, remember that encouragers are church growers. Number 16, don't overlook the frustrated, young parents, teens, the unemployed, the newly divorced, etc. Number 17, mentally walk a mile in the potentially encouraged person's shoes. Number 18, Find exciting, unusual ways to make somebody's day. Number 19, appreciate the value of a handwritten note or card, especially in our virtual world. And number 20, reach out to the marginalized, whether new members, the poor, those who attend alone, the elderly, widows, widowers, etc. You know, it doesn't take much, but it can make an eternal difference. Be an encourager. Daniel Bakeman was born on October 9, 1759. He married Susan Brewer on August 29, 1772. They weren't yet teenagers. And then after that, he joined the American Army during the Revolutionary War. He survived the war and then lived almost another 100 years. And so when he died on April 5, 1869, he was the last surviving veteran of the war that made us a country. He lived four years after the end of the Civil War. As remarkable as that is, he's also part of another world record that will always stand, probably, in this country. He, his marriage to Susan lasted until September 10th, 1863, when she passed away. They were married for 91 years and 12 days. I, I can't find anything out about the details of their marriage, even though they left many descendants who carry through various spellings of the family name, the names Bachman, Beckman, Bateman, Bateman, and even Baker. Various archives indicate that Mr. Bakeman was spry and humorous to the end and that Mrs. Bakeman exhibited needlework that she had done without the aid of glasses when she was 102. They lived and died in a town called Freedom, and Mr. Bakeman holds the distinction of having voted in every election from Washington to Grant. As remarkable as his military distinction is, his marriage distinction deserves higher honor. He fought in and survived a war that lasted less than 10 years. He endured hardships, who knows how many ups and downs, and undoubtedly some trying marital moments en route to almost a century of marital bliss. They were together to the end, an exaggerated commitment and highest love example. You will almost certainly not break the Bakeman's record for length of marriage, but you could exceed what they enjoyed for depth and breadth. What are you doing to build upon the highest love for your spouse? 
What daily investments are you making? Your marriage will be remembered by those who know you. How it will be remembered is something over which you exert full control. So make it a legacy of lasting love. I saw a billboard on Interstate 70 near Abilene, Kansas that read, Jesus heals and restores, pornography destroys. It was positioned directly in front of an adult store called The Lion's Den. It seemed a clever tactical move to give somebody hankering to patronize such a place at least a second thought. Does pornography have a destructive effect on the consumer? Clinical psychologist Dr. Victor Klein of the University of Utah is famed for his five stages of addiction. They are early exposure, addiction, escalation, desensitization, and acting out sexually. What Klein says about sexual addiction mirrors addictive behaviors in other realms. Drug addicts often move through those same phases, as well as those addicted to gambling, food, and other things that can be addictive. As you examine those phases, you can see the desperation, guilt, damaged relationships, and danger that's intrinsically involved. Pornography leads to objectifying people, desiring what's perverse and even illegal, and experiencing dysfunction on a number of levels. The good news is the first half of the message on that billboard. That message is as old as the New Testament itself. Paul told the Corinthian church, steeped in all kinds of ungodly behavior, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. The good news extends to those enslaved to pornography, too. A changed, penitent heart and mind that longs to be free and exerts the effort and self-control can be healed and restored. Pornography, like every other sin, promises freedom and pleasure, but it cannot deliver. But one can be delivered at any time they desire. No sin is bigger than Jesus. When did I first know that I wanted to be a preacher? I don't know, but I remember the day that I addressed the city council in Cairo, Georgia. I was only nine. We were walking home from school, and every day we'd make the trek from 10th Avenue across Broad Street to our house on 12th Avenue. It was a straight shot, but there was a penny candy store if you went south. A couple of blocks south between us and the store was the courthouse. And of course, every self-respecting boy looks for shortcuts, and mine was through the courthouse that day. It appeared empty to me, so I was singing the far-out new McFadden and Whitehead hit, Ain't No Stopping Us Now. Just one more set of doors between me and the back door, I thought, so I burst through them bellowing, We're on the move. And with that, I brought the city council meeting to a stop, and in an instant before my beet-red face welled up with tears of embarrassment, I think I saw looks of irritation as well as amusement. For some reason, I was feeling really good that day until that moment. You ever feel unstoppable? Maybe you're bounding with energy, excited or happy without even knowing why. It may make you sing, exercise, eat, kiss your spouse, give exploding knuckles to a stranger or pause in grateful thanks to God. Every moment cannot be euphoric and golden, but how wonderful when it happens. Depression is a real malady that many people, including good Christians, experience. Some deal with clinical depression, physiological and demanding chemical treatment. However, some without such an excuse seem to have a hard time finding joy in their lives. 
It could be because they've conditioned themselves toward negativity, complaining, bemoaning, wallowing in self-pity, and being their own one-person thunderstorm. Some seem to stand there waiting for a lightning strike on a cloudless day. As Christians, we are not expected to be out of touch with reality or even our own feelings. And yet only we can choose our outlook and attitude. Isn't it amazing that we are all exposed to national politics, economic uncertainties, sickness, disappointment, and betrayal, but some are more resilient while others are resentful. Some count blessings, others count burdens. May we as God's children always focus more on what we have been given by Christ, what we have through Christ, and what we look forward to with Christ. I tell you, it'll make you feel unstoppable. Well, Dale and Carl wanted us to share with you some of the things that we found scary. And uh, I'm going to let Kathy go first, and then I've got a story to share, too. (laughs) Uh, I think I have a couple of stories. Um, The first one was several years ago when you were out of town. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) um, the boys and I came home late from some kind of church event. And when we came home, I went to the sliding glass door in the back to let the dog out. And she started growling and barking. And as soon as she did that, I heard a man start yelling very threatening things. And he was saying things like, I'm going to come over there and I'm going to shut your dog up. I'm going to come over there and I'm going to tear you apart limb from limb. And of course, I freaked out and slammed the sliding glass door shut, cut off all the lights, called 911. Um, And then I ran upstairs to shut the boys in their room. And on the way back down the stairs, I tried to call you really quick. Yeah, I remember. And it was really late at night, and you were two hours later than I was. So I decided I better not call you because there was really nothing you could do anyway. So I hung up the phone. Well, you, I guess, found out that I was trying to call. Yeah, it was like 2 in the morning. Yeah, and so you called right back, and I picked up the phone, and I said... Sorry, I can't talk right now. The police are here. And then I just hung up on you. (laughs) And as soon as I did that, I thought, oh, no, that was not a smart move. And sure enough, you called me right back. And and I had to tell you that I would, you know, talk to you later. The police were at the door. And really what had happened, the police were great. They showed up in no time at all. And apparently a drunk from a bar way up the street had wandered down the street. And, you know, he was just behind our yard. And so um, they searched every. They searched the house. They searched the backyard, and then they said they were going to cruise around and see if they could find anybody. Um, and then they came back within about five minutes and said they had found the guy, and and taken him off. But if I had any more problems, to give him a call. So <laughs> that's pretty scary. Yeah, that was very scary. But the the scariest part was just you know. Pulling you in on that when you couldn't do yep. anything. That's so. scary for me, too. I'm just going to apologize for that right now. No, you're forgiven. Thank you. That was like 15 years ago. <laughs> so what was your other story? Well, it, I don't know if it qualifies as scary, but I took some oral vaccinations for typhoid fever before mm-hmm. we went to Tanzania. Yep. And had, 2005. had the first hallucinations in my life. And... Um, one of them was that somebody was breaking into the house and coming after me. And another one was I was driving home and 
there was a car that kept riding up on my bumper with purple headlights. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, when I got home and told you about it, you didn't believe me. <laughs> well, about the one about in the middle of the night, the dream you had about that creature. Yeah, well... That was scary to me, too. That's, yeah, I, I saw this big purple bug thing with ginormous legs hanging down like a flying spider, and it was right in my face, and... <laughs> I woke you up and I was like, get it, get it, get it, get it. And you said... And again, that was like two or three in the, the middle morning. of the night. Yeah. yeah. You said, what's it look like? And I described it to you. And as I'm describing it to you, it dawns on me there's no such thing. But strange, the scary part about that story that part. was I actually ended up getting typhoid, typhoid fever, fever anyway mm-hmm. and right. had a fever that spiked so high I started hallucinating again. <laughs> yep. Yep. That was after we came back from the trip. Yes. But it was great. Don't let, don't let that scare anybody mm. from... Going to Tanzania, that'd be bad. Absolutely. What's your story? Well, as I've I mean, thought, nothing can top no, those very I, scary I stories. I have, you know, I have traveled in many different places and been exposed to a lot of different things, but nothing will compare to that frightening night when we were first married living in Livingston, Alabama, <laughs> and I walked down a long, dark, silent highway, uh, hallway, <laughs> and as I turned the corner... This frightening creature jumped out from the shadows and said, boo. And I screamed like a little girl. He screamed so bad like a girl. (laughs) I thought I was dead. You know, my family, when I was growing up, we had a lot of fun scaring each other. My dad instilled that in us. That was a great source of entertainment, and I just wanted to pass that along to you. Yeah. When we got married, only I didn't know that... You would I'm, scream like a girl. I'm still feeling the effects was, of that today. I was kind of worried. My first thought was, <laughs> this is me. what he's going to do when the boogeyman comes? He's going to scream like a girl? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I've got your back. <laughs> well, I hope this is uh, of any help to you guys in collecting your scary stories. And we really enjoy The Bible's Not Boring. Keep it up. Also, we love you. Bye. Laura Elliott, first grade Bible class teacher at the Cold Harbor Road Congregation, was teaching my son Dale's class about King Solomon's 300 wives and 700 concubines, about how not only was it wrong to have so many wives, but how difficult it must have been for Solomon to keep up with all their names. Laura tells me that Dale's solution was simple. Couldn't he just call them all honey? If only keeping up with their names was Solomon's most serious task with regard to those women. Reading 1 Kings 11, right off the heels of Solomon's hosting of the Queen of Sheba and the extremely opulent exchange of gifts between them, we're impressed with an incredible flaw in Solomon's character. Perhaps Ecclesiastes was written later enough in his life that after 1 Kings 11 that he realized with regret the folly of such a lifestyle. Consider some things about Solomon's deadly mistake. First, his mistake was in whom he had such great affection, 1 Kings 11, 1 and 2. They were foreign women from nations with whom God explicitly forbade such fraternization. God knew that such worldly yoking would lead men to fall away from Him. Be careful who your object of affection is. Choosing wrong is a deadly mistake. Second, his mistake was in how he held them in affection. 1 Kings 11, 1 and 2. These women of the world were apparently beautiful and seductive. The word for love in these two verses speaks more to physical attraction and very little uh, spiritual love. It might be said that Solomon pursued these women from lust. From his own pen, he wrote of how dangerous such a pursuit is. To follow his example today is a deadly mistake. And third, his mistake was in what his affection for them led him to do. 1 Kings 11, 3-10. It led him to worship the idols revered by these pagan women. It also led him to ignore God's commands and even outright rebel against them. 
The natural consequence of following in his footsteps is the same today. A choice must be made. Choosing the path of sensuality prevents one from obeying God. Obeying God makes it impossible at the same time to pursue such a sinful path. Choose like he did and you make a deadly mistake. And finally, his mistake is in what his affection for them cost him. 1 Kings 11 11. His pursuit of these women cost him the kingdom. God took it from him through the rebellion of Jeroboam and the folly of Rehoboam, his son. Following Solomon's mistake is, is costly. It will often cost one dearly, financially, socially, physically. Lacking repentance, it will surely cost one eternally. And yet so many are imitating Solomon's deadly mistake. May we take a page from inspiration and learn from Solomon's deadly mistake. Laura Elliott, first grade Bible class teacher at the Cold Harbor Road congregation, was teaching my son Dale's class about King Solomon's 300 wives and 700 concubines, about how not only was it wrong to have so many wives, but how difficult it must have been for Solomon to keep up with all their names. Laura tells me that Dale's solution was simple. Couldn't he just call them all honey? If only keeping up with their names was Solomon's most serious task with regard to those women. Reading 1 Kings 11, right off the heels of Solomon's hosting of the Queen of Sheba and the extremely opulent exchange of gifts between them, we're impressed with an incredible flaw in Solomon's character. Perhaps Ecclesiastes was written later enough in his life that after 1 Kings 11 that he realized with regret the folly of such a lifestyle. Consider some things about Solomon's deadly mistake. First, his mistake was in whom he had such great affection, 1 Kings 11, 1 and 2. They were foreign women from nations with whom God explicitly forbade such fraternization. God knew that such worldly yoking would lead men to fall away from him. Be careful who your object of affection is. Choosing wrong is a deadly mistake. Second, his mistake was in how he held them in affection, 1 Kings 11, 1 and 2. These women of the world were apparently beautiful and seductive. The word for love in these two verses speaks more to physical attraction and very little uh, spiritual love. It might be said that Solomon pursued these women from lust. From his own pen, he wrote of how dangerous such a pursuit is. To follow his example today is a deadly mistake. And third, his mistake was in what his affection for them led him to do. 1 Kings eleven three through 10 It led him to worship the idols revered by these pagan women. It also led him to ignore God's commands and even outright rebel against them. The natural consequence of following in his footsteps is the same today. A choice must be made. Choosing the path of sensuality prevents one from obeying God. Obeying God makes it impossible at the same time to pursue such a sinful path. Choose like he did and you make a deadly mistake. And finally, his mistake is in what his affection for them cost him. 1 Kings 11 11. His pursuit of these women cost him the kingdom. God took it from him through the rebellion of Jeroboam and the folly of Rehoboam, his son. Following Solomon's mistake is, is costly. It will often cost one uh, dearly, financially, socially, physically. Lacking repentance, it will surely cost one eternally. And yet so many are imitating Solomon's deadly mistake. May we take a page from inspiration and learn from Solomon's deadly mistake. The Caesar's Citizen Headline the Jerusalem church splits over politics. Barack monitored the results of the latest imperial policies out of Rome, and he hashed it and rehashed it with his brethren at the fellowship meals, on his job at the fish market, indefinitely with vehemence with his inner circle of friends and family. 
Elkanan came from a long line of zealots, and although he had become a Christian several years before, his leanings and passion about the matter were well known to anyone who spent any time with him. Michael, Zechariah, and Esther voiced their empathy for Elkanan's position, while Gaius, Claudia, Junius, and Manius, ever loyal to the politics of their native homeland, aligned themselves with Barak. Unfortunately, they all also were Christians who worshipped together or in neighboring congregations around Jerusalem. They got so caught up in it that they marched, they protested, they pledged allegiance with oaths, they argued, and they held one another in contempt and suspicion. Meanwhile, Jews and Gentiles all around them lived and died without hearing the message of Jesus and the purpose he died to make available to them. They did not associate those early Christians with love. They had no clue about the heart of the gospel message, the good news they needed in the unstable times in which they lived. They failed to see distinctiveness and kindness. They saw a mirrored reflection of their unregenerate selves. Mired in the smallness of contemporary concern, the church at Jerusalem, distracted from their mission, never taught lost souls, devoted themselves to service or live lives that showed utmost trust in Jesus and his power to save and transform. Predictably, these small bands of disciples circled their chariots around themselves and hid their lights under their baskets. That's not quite the way that Luke records it. Politics was a constant headline news matter in the first century. There was volatility and polarization. With a the theater and stadiums, there were no shortages of entertainment diversions too. But when you read the book of Acts, you find a quickly growing band of disciples reaching the thousands in number precisely because they stayed above the sensual fray of politics and any other ephemeral concern. They understood that what lasted and what would not last. From the first verse that records their collective activity, they were devoted, Acts 2.42. Their devotion was powerfully, primarily, and passionately Jesus and His will. It doesn't matter that we're 2,000 years removed from that or that our situation is not exactly parallel. Our mission has not changed. Our primary focus must be the same as theirs. Ever wonder who benefits the most from our getting mired in the mud of carnal things? Hint. It isn't Jesus. He was named after a World War I general, born in Los Angeles in 1918, just after the American Doughboys went over there. Robert Pershing Bobby Dewar was an everyday player who achieved some notoriety. He was the oldest living player who was in the Hall of Fame when he died just three years ago this week. But making his debut in 1937, Dewar is a part of some interesting facts. He played against Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Mel Ott, uh, Hank Greenberg, Schoolboy Rowe, Lloyd and Paul Wainer, and Pie Trainer, as well as many other all-time greats. Jimmy Fox and Lefty Grove were his teammates. Lefty pitched to Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, and Tris Speaker. In 1925, his rookie season, Grove sat across the dugout from Jimmy Austin, age 46, Oscar Stanage, age 42, and Chief Bender, age 41. Sitting in his dugout, though, was Jack Quinn, age 42, who was a teammate of Austin's on the 1909 New York Highlanders, a team that also included Wee Willie Killer and Jack Chesbro. We could keep going, but we'll stop here. Dewar, a man who was still in his right mind, could tell you all about Lefty Grove and who uh, heard who knows how many stories that Grove told about players who played in the 1800s, connections to the earliest days of baseball. Dewar was a link to history. 
The man who currently is the oldest living baseball player, Eddie Robinson, could make almost the same claims and trace his baseball history back like Dewar could. How many have pointed out the interesting facts from the Genesis genealogies where it is possible that Noah's grandfather, Methuselah, may have known Adam? They they were almost certainly contemporaries, and that covers a span of 1,656 years. Noah and Seth, Adam's third son, would have been alive together for 34 years before Seth's death. To appreciate how incredible that is, consider that 1,656 years ago was the year 359 A.D., four years before Constantine's grandson, Julian the Apostate, became Roman emperor. It would take, not take a lot of digging around in our congregations to find individuals who provide us a link to church history. As a lover of history, I am thrilled in my soul to think that we are linked to great men and women of God who helped start and build up the Lord's church. When I was seven years old, my family and I visited in the home of Zany Michaels, a then 100-year-old sister in Christ who was a member where Dad preached in Barrickville, West Virginia. She was four years old when the church there was established. Some of the great preachers of the 19th century traversed the bergs and valleys around Barrickville, and Sister Michael heard several of them. We got to hear her, regaled by her clear recollections, and link through her to such wonderful history. Isn't it amazing how God has put all this together? and helped us to appreciate the link to living history that we all are. Ebenezer. No, not Scrooge, though my favorite version starred George C. Scott. That Ebenezer is the one that even most Christians are more familiar with. The Ebenezer I'm referring to is from the Bible. You'll read about it between 1 Samuel 4 through 7. The first two references are to an existing village, but it's the last reference that Robert Robinson makes use of in his well-known hymn, O Thou Fount of Every Blessing. In the thread of Jewish history, Eli is rejected as high priest because of the corruption in his house against the people. Samuel is chosen to replace him, and due to the terrible leadership of Eli's sons and their influence over the people, God allows the Philistines to rout them in battle. The Israelites try to form their own solution by bringing the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh to Ebenezer as an icon of power and maybe to intimidate the Philistines. But this backfires. The Philistines steal the Ark and they keep it in the house of their god Dagon for seven months. And this brings about what might have been bubonic plague on the Philistines until desperately they return the Ark to Israel. Except for the over 50,000 people of Bet Shemesh who looked into the ark when it was returned to them and they were destroyed, things overall were much improved for Israel. And by now, Eli's successor has been named. Eliezer cares for the ark and he safeguards it for 20 years at Kerjath-Jerim. Samuel leads a restoration movement to free Israel from Philistine oppression. The people repent when they gather at Mizpah. The Philistines hear of Israel's prayer meeting and prepare to fight them, and Samuel urges prayer and sacrifice. It was then that God made his appearance and confused the Philistines so much that Israel utterly defeats them. There between Mizpah and Shen, Samuel places a stone and lays it on the ground, calling the place Ebenezer. This means, thus far the Lord has helped us, 1 Samuel seven twelve. Israel regained cities lost to Philistia and were relieved from their oppression. The place where Israel had been defeated twice became the place where God helped his people win with finality. Why would Robinson use such a relatively obscure Old Testament moment to talk about God's guidance and assistance? First, Israel had come as far as they could from wickedness to salvation, but it was not by their goodness and power that they were delivered. 
Far from it. God thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines. The Lord confused them. And so Samuel sets up a memorial in an attempt to remind Israel of their dependence on him. You know, because of human nature, we still need that reminder today. The Lord's Supper is a memorial of dependence, a continual reminder of our need for a substitute sacrifice to save us. Prayer is an inherent reminder that we're preserved only by the Lord's help. Even our bodies remind us that we're finite. When we look at the incredible world of nature, our souls sing out, How great thou art! And so the next time you sing that Robinson hymn, remember it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Lamentations three, twenty-two. If you Google the phrase, us a death unfair, you'll find at least 22,000 hits, most of which address the idea. In case you're having a momentary brain cramp over exactly who Uzzah was, he was the man who died when he tried to steady the Ark of the Covenant as David arranged for it to come back to Jerusalem. Since the last day of Eli's life, the Philistines had had it. That, uh, that nation, given the trouble that they received from God for keeping it, returned it to Israel, to Kiriath-Jerim, where Eliezer was, was charged to keep it at Abinadab's house on the hill. And then following Saul's reign, David wanted to bring it back to Jerusalem. Abinadab's sons, Uzzah and Ahio, set the ark on a new cart and began the journey toward Jerusalem. At Nacon's threshing floor, the oxen stumble, and Uzzah takes hold of the ark. And there God struck him down for his irreverence. He died there by the ark of God, 2 Samuel 6, 7. And David's so angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah that he calls the site of that place Perez Uzzah. One might ask why God reacted in what the modern mind sees as a harsh way, simply for steadying the ark after the oxen stumbled. In 1 Chronicles 15, we have several answers. First, David said it was because we did not consult God about the proper order, verse 13. In other words, Israel took it on themselves to move the ark, which they knew was the place where the glory of the Lord resided, without regard to how God commanded it to be done. Jeremiah says that it is not in man to direct his own steps, Jeremiah 10.23. Second, they had gotten away from their spiritual roots. In this case, their spiritual roots were what Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. In 1 Chronicles 15.15, God had an established, authorized way to carry the ark, which the writers review in this verse. On this occasion, they did as Moses revealed. The Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, verse 15. And finally, they tried to get, it by, they tried to get by on self-reliance, verse 26. Their newly rediscovered reverence following Uzzah's death led David, the Levites, and all Israel to see that God helped the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant. This spirit of dependency apparently did not exist when Uzzah walked behind the ox cart. Is it unfair for God to want his people to consult him, to be true to their spiritual roots, to properly regard and revere him and to rely on him? Certainly not. Uzzah certainly shows us the grave danger that we face by trying to go out on our own without reverence toward reliance upon and recognition of God and his power and his authority in our lives.